discussion? Yes. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Na'hamaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihil kareem. Amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings upon the Prophet, peace be upon him. Please uh, don't mind all the mess, the increasing mess behind me in the office. It's Ramadan fun. And having said that, <laughs> we are now getting into the second ayah of Al-Baqarah. Let me just write things here. Oh man, we're in April. Uh, Danya, did the storm hit you very hard? Um, for like 40, 45 minutes, like severe uh, rain, very windy, um, but not too bad, alhamdulillah. That's it, alhamdulillah. The, uh, I think in the span of two hours, we've, we had like nine warning notifications. The last one said 90 mile an hour winds. And so I canceled everything here. I canceled Tarawi and everything. And I headed home. Loyola was completely calm, but about a mile south of Loyola, then it was just insane for almost the entire drive home. So, good times. All righty. So, pulling up, uh, I guess, in Chicago. Go. Pulling up the ayahs that we're looking at, the second ayah of Al-Baqarah. ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابُ لَا رَيْبَ or kitab, kitab and let me show it to you on the screen. So once again, nod, pretend that you can see it on, on your screen. Okay, very good. So first, some um, some basic uh, Arabic grammar type points, uh, and some of you are already familiar with this I, this concept of mu'anaka. These double sets of three dots you find a few times in the Quran. Can anyone tell us what these three dots mean? Go for it, Mustafa. It means that uh, you can stop on one or the either, but not both. Yeah, essentially. So well, this uh, is a fascinating ayah because of this. We don't really have an equivalent in English. This is sort of like a semicolon in the sense that that, would, that which it comes before the dots is one complete thought. That which comes after the dots is one complete thought. But you decide which of the two sets of the three dots you follow. So if we were to write this out, it would work this way. So this is the book. No doubt. Semicolon. Sorry for that last part. Make it a little bit neater. No doubt. Semicolon. In it is guidance for those who have taqwa. those with taqwa so that's one way to read it so if we stop at the first set of doubts then we have this is the book no doubt in it is guidance for those who have taqwa i don't understand why on your screen it seems like it's descending down on my screen it's complete well no maybe not okay forget it okay so then the second way to read it is this is the book with no doubt in it semicolon 
it is guidance for those with taqwa. So, so yeah, I agree. Uh, most of the two ways of reciting were mind blowing when I first learned about the dots. Yeah. Um, so this is a very, very fa uh, fascinating grammatical form. The key being, where do you place in it? Fihi. So either you put it before the punctuation or you put it after the punctuation. Either it's part of the first phrase or it's part of the second phrase. So having said that, what is the difference between these two sentences? And in fact, to make it easier, yeah, go for it, Mustafa. So one means that the book itself is guidance uh, to those with taqwa, uh, and that, like that, guidance is without doubt as such. Uh, the other one is that it has no doubt, it has no mistakes within it, and it is guidance to, um, and the fact that it is as such is guidance to mm -hmm. people. Exactly. So it's basically uh, either it's speaking about the container or the content of the container, the container being the book. This is the book, no doubt. Yeah. Or, and this is the book that has no doubt within it. And then look at the second half. In it is guidance for those who have taqwa. It is itself guidance for those who have taqwa. But the question is, whoops, sorry. The question is, what book are we referring to? For example, when was the Quran put into book form? Anybody know? Anybody remember? So, yeah, Mustafa. During the time of Uthman. So, under Uthman, it was, the script was standardized. And it is still, your point is still correct that it was put into one unit. So, let me give you a high-speed history of the editing and the compilation of, of the Quran. And I'm going to list it by central figure involved phase one is the phase of the prophet peace be upon him this one we all know that here it is essentially the prophet reciting the companions listening the companions memorizing the prophet embodying the quran the companions observing and when relevant copying right completed he receives his final revelation, give or take six months before his passing. So he receives revelation over the course of, give or take, about 23 years. Phase one. Phase two, the prophet has died. Abu Bakr is the leader of the Ummah. <clears throat> and it is in this period that we have the Ridda Wars, where you had just about all of the tribes of Arabia saying, yeah, we're still Muslim, but we're not going to pay zakat anymore. And so then the Abu Bakr, in discussion with his advisors, primarily Omar, deciding what to do, Omar says to go easy on them because they're new Muslims. Abu Bakr says, I can't believe I'm hearing this from Omar. Abu Bakr declares war on them. And over the course of these battles, 
many of the people who had the Quran memorized, many of the Hufaz died. And Omar is saying to Abu Bakr, we have to write it down. And Abu Bakr is saying, how can I do something the Prophet did not do? And that also gives us a sense of the Sahaba in relationship to the Prophet, peace be upon him. That they would do what he did, but they would also not do what he did not do. And Omar convinces Abu Bakr that this is a khayr. This is a good, in our modern language, this is a good, a beneficial innovation. And Abu Bakr agrees, and he assigns one of the Prophet's secretaries, Zayd bin Thabit, to write out the entire Quran. Zayd's backstory was that he was raised either Jewish or he was raised by Jews, to the point that he even had curly hair like we think of when we think of Hasidic Jews and such. And so Zayd was also a translator for the Prophet, peace be upon him. He was one of his secretaries. And when Abu Bakr said to him, you have to write out the whole Quran, he refused. How could I do something the Prophet did not do? But he had to listen to the Amir, Abu Bakr. And so he then takes on the project of writing out the whole Quran. He says, if they told me to move these mountains, it would have been easier than this task. Why? Why would that be easier? Because of, because of writing the Quran is such high responsibility. and Yeah. You make a mistake, it could potentially be there forever. Right, And so by the time he is done, the Quran is written as essentially 114 individual, what we'd call folios. So think of it as 114 individual units, not technically bound as a book. That is completed by the time Abu Bakr dies. And then that copy is given to Hafsa, daughter of Omar, wife of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And it's she is, she keeps it. Nevertheless, then in uh, in phase one and phase two, even if the Quran is being written out in part or in bits, the primary method of preservation was memorization. And then jump forward a bit over a decade to the Khilafah of Uthman. And this is essentially what, what Mustafa was referring to. Now, the Islam is an empire. And there was a need to standardize the script. And there were also other issues regarding variant readings that are traced back to the prophet, peace be upon him, like the grammar that we just did. <clears throat> and under Uthman, again, under the leadership of Zayd, they write out standardized copies of the Quran. In academic language, we call this the Uthmani Codex. And copies of these standard, uh, standardized editions were then sent to all the capitals of this new empire with reciters. Again, primary delivery is recitation. Primary preservation, memorization. Of those copies, we may or may not still have a couple. There is one that was believed to be in the museum in Tashkent in Uzbekistan, which turns out to be a later copy. There is one which was found in the archives of, uh, it might have been the Sultan Hassan Mosque in Cairo, which also seems to not be authenticated as being this old. But we may or may not still have these. Uh, Allah knows best. Ask the common Muslim. They won't know because even today, the primary method of, of, of preservation is memorization. 
jump forward a century <clears throat> to the 700s, and there's a famous tyrannical governor, Hajjaj bin Yusuf. Uh, he's known for literally taking no prisoners, like literally taking no prisoners. There's poems written about him. There's a famous uh, poem written about him in which a dervish comes into town and he hears about this so like an ascetic, someone who's super spiritual. Back then, they didn't have the language of Sufis yet. And, and so Hajjaj bin Yusuf brings him into his court and asks the dervish, okay, why don't you pray for me? And he says, I pray. There's two different narrations. Both of them are pretty cool. The first narration is I pray that you fall asleep. And he says, what kind of narration is that? What kind of prayer is this? He said, the people are safer when you're asleep. Good. Another narration of the same moment is I pray that you die. And he's like, what kind of prayer is this? He says, because, you know, that's the only time people will be safe. In any case, so that's his reputation in history. But it is believed that he added the diacritical marks. So if you look at a really old copy of the Quran, Quran old copy. You'll see that it does not have any diacritical marks, right? Unless you can recognize the word Bismillah, uh, you can't recognize what this is. Is this Ya? Is it Ba? Is it Ma? Right? And so because the primary method is recitation, so this becomes sort of the skeleton that helps you preserve it. And so he added, no, this is still a newer copy, an older copy, but he added, no, you can't really see here, but you've all seen, wait, right here. So all these little tiny marks, the dots, Fataka Sardama, uh, he added all those. Uh, four non-Arabs. There's other beliefs and other ways he has also added to uh, the printing, the writing of the Quran. Another is a belief that he organized the whole thing in rukus, so that when you're reciting, you just re recite in one rakah, you recite one huruku. Danya. So it does that include like the the tajweed portion of it? So I mean some of them, like how long you carry it or, or how long you extend it when you're reciting, etc. Is that passed down from um like teachings or is that in addition to like what he added? Because so, it's a little different than just like reading out of the so the recitation goes back to the prophet pc upon him but how it's recorded on right. paper starts with hajjaj bin yusuf interesting okay and then arabic grammar forms uh gets really really formulated with this persian named sibaway and then so imagine even in those copies the marking the type of markings we have now are still different still went through an evolution one thing that you also find interesting is that the Ottomans, they started printing the Quran in a standardized number of lines. So most of the Qurans you you will pick up, most of the Mus'hafs you pick up will have usually 13 or 15 lines. We can count how many lines there are. Uh, so that when I'm memorizing, I memorize not by surahs, I memorize by page. And so in Tarawi, in Taravi, in one rakah, someone's usually reciting one page, yeah. which doesn't doesn't follow the meanings though. So 
this is purely for memorization purposes and and so someone might speak make a recite something that ends in the middle of the thought ends, ends at an ayah but in the middle of the thought and then continues in the next uh ruku. and so it is believed that that started with hajjaj bin yusuf next phase jump forward a thousand years and we have shah waliullah Uh, I like him because he gave himself this title, the King of the Friends of God. He also gave himself another title, Qutb al-Zaman. So in Islamic spirituality in the realm of the Sufis, there's this idea that you have specific people throughout the world that are the spiritual poles of the iman of everybody. And then their spirituality rests on other people. And that rests on other people, and that rests on other people, which rests on one person in each era. And it's it's a sort of an advanced uh, uh, topic. And so Shah Waliullah claimed to be the Qutb of his era. Not the first person in history to claim that. Other people also claim to be, for example, the, re the revival of their era, Mujaddid of such and such. Um, but he is the first Muslim to do a full translation of the Quran for Muslims. Okay. And why am I emphasizing it that way? Uh, in between Hajjaj bin Yusuf, so he, Hajjaj bin Yusuf 700s, Shawaliullah is in the 1700s. In between, Europe, especially sponsored by the Vatican, has had multiple translations of the, of the Quran, primarily written for research purposes, Spanish, German, Latin, so forth and so on. There was even one period as a peacemaking gesture they they translated the Quran, they printed the Quran as a gift to the uh, Ottomans. But they had too many mistakes, and so the Ottomans kind of discarded them. So Shah Waliullah is translating the Quran into Farsi. And scholars were pushing back on him. What would be their complaint? Anyone? Translating? Yeah. Like interpretation. So one issue is translation is an exercise in interpretation it means you're automatically privileging certain interpretations and you're erasing other interpretations that are equally valid what else what else would be a concern mustafa might be a bit of a long shot but i can imagine that some people could potentially have issue with no they should learn arabic and learn the quran in its language rather exactly than version yeah so the concern was that if i can access the quran without arabic then we're going to see is start decreasing the need for arabic his pushback was <laughs> look at what's happening in the world right now what is happening in the world in the 1700s in the Indian subcontinent where Shah Waliullah was? Anybody know? Daisies? Non-Daisies? What, what time period you said, sorry? 1700s. Uh, East Indian Company? Yeah, the British are, are taking over everything. The British are dominating the subcontinent and they're taking over much of the entire world following immediately in in the subcontinent after the footsteps of the dutch and the portuguese that must fire you saying something else yeah and one of the policies that uh 
the British tend to do, because initially it was just a company, but then it became part of the British Empire. Mm. And uh, the logic that they had was that they wanted um, all of their colonies to be English in everything but skin tone. And so they would uh, make like the native languages illegal. Uh and make people have to learn English and all education in English. And Mm -hmm. so essentially Arabic as well as like the native languages were slowly but surely illegalized. That's the British. British literally rewrote the entire subcontinent, rewrote the educational system, revamped Islam, much of Islam through these educational systems and such. And that's just the subcontinent, what to speak of the rest of the world. And so Shah Waliullah is saying, look, if we don't do this translation, okay, it's well and good. People might lose their connection with Arabic and such. We're going to lose Islam in terms of uh, what's going on. And then we have Muhammad Piktal, Muhammad Marmaduke Piktal, who is the first Muslim to write a full translation of the Quran into English. And that translation, you find everywhere, the Pictal translation. Yusuf Ali comes after him. Now in English, there's about 50 translations to English. His is not the first translation of the Quran into English. Some say it's George Sale from Cambridge, uh, which is the, the, the translation that Keith Ellison and Ilhan Omar and others used for their oath of office when they were elected into Congress. Uh, this translation was sponsored by the Nazim of Hyderabad uh, for the purposes of Datwa. But that's the first translation into English by a Muslim. He himself was a convert. He was part of the, uh, the anti-colonial movement, and so he was a British guy. All right, so this is just a high-speed point. To emphasize, under the Prophet, peace be upon him, the Quran was not into book form. So back in this ayah, what are we referring to when we're saying this is the book? Many, many interpretations. What are your thoughts? I was thinking maybe, um, sorry, can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Okay, cool. I'm in the car, so I didn't know if I like, hit it right. Are you um, driving right now? Yeah. <laughs> okay, please um, be safe. I will be, inshallah. Inshallah. Um, <laughs> um so i was thinking like maybe it was kind of hinting toward the fact that like there would be uh, because like we, what we talked about in like one of like the first maybe like the first day of this class was that like the intended audience was like first like prophet muhammad وسلم, and so yes. like so like maybe it's like hinting to him that like there will be like a book version of all of this later and then that you don't have to like worry that like things will get twisted because like I'm telling you that like it won't be. Sure, uh, very much so. That <clears throat> the book is forthcoming. Danya, what do you think? Um, playing off of what Bilal just said, that like the prophet himself is the book. Ooh, He's the, that was pretty deep. the container. That's that works. That's the guidance for Takwa. Mm. No doubt in him. Uh, that uh, seems to fit. Never occurred to me. Nice, mashallah. Mustafa. Uh, it could be the Quran itself or the series of messages passed from 
profit to another until uh, the culmination of the message with the prophet Muhammad. So all the way from Adam to mm-hmm. time of the prophet um, might not necessarily be literally meant to be a book because mm. we can see within the rest of Quran, like for example, in uh, Al-Kahf, in the very end, when God refers to his words, he makes a comparison to um, like All the trees and pens, the ocean and ink. And so like mm-hmm. refers to it as if like they were written using that they would deplete before God's words would. Mm-hmm. And so God's words aren't necessarily in written form. Mm-hmm. Like they've been pastorally and only God knows how they originated. And so mm-hmm. like it could be symbolism potentially. What does the word kitab mean? So if we if we say kutiba alaykum siyam, kutiba alaykum al-kital, what does kitab mean? This is a question for anybody, but most of us are official. So prescription. So kutiba written for you, kutiba alaykum. So if we change this to prescription, then it does not have to be a bound book. To make that point further, the word we're translating as this is thalika. What does thalika actually mean? That. And then the rhetoric of this, it's still understood to mean emphasis on this, this, this. Or, raise yourself for this one. Another interpretation of what is spoken of here as the book, the kitab, is what will be open for you on the day of judgment. That that moment, there is no doubt about that. And the day of judgment, as well as what is within the day of judgment, is also guidance for the person in this world. Sadia and then Mustafa. So uh, to uh, to the question of book, um, I have also heard that it came down in a the entire Quran came down at one time to Lohe Mahfuz. Yes, and from well, Lohe Mahfuz is a source, but you keep going. Right, and then from there. So like a book form, you can say like, because it was all together. So they're referring it to, uh, referring to it as a book. And then from there, it came down little by little. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes, this is also um, assumed that it's referring to that book. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So so to to make the point that Saudi is making, the common belief is that on Laylatul Qadr, it actually came down in two ways. First, the entirety of the Quran went from, for our lack of a better, uh, lack of a better uh, way to describe it, the dimension of Allah to the dimension of angels. Bayt al-Ma'mur. And then the first ayahs were delivered from there by Jibreel alayhi salam to the Prophet, peace be upon him. 
and Jibreel salam is delivering it from there to the Prophet peace be upon him over the course of two, you know nearly two dozen years, except for those two ayahs that the Prophet peace be upon him receives directly from Allah. And so it could be referring to that. Yes, Mustafa. Is it possible that it could be all of the above? Yeah, absolutely. Combination of any of the above? Okay. Yeah. Uh, it could be all of the above, any combination, definitely. And so... Oh, do, you, just do you mind repeating, the, repeating the, the point about Day of Judgment? Um, so, so this is the book that will be open for you of your deeds. Mm. And there is no doubt about that. And if we think of, so the order that the Prophet, peace be upon him, organized the Quran is different than the order that the Prophet, peace be upon him, received the Quran. What was the first thing that the Prophet, peace be upon him, told the people of Mecca when he went public? So he receives the first revelations in the cave, goes back to Khadija. On the way there, he sees Jibril again, with Khadija, he's receiving while he's wrapped up, Surat al-Muzammil, Surat al-Muddathir, the first parts of those. Shortly after that, somewhere, he receives Surat al-Fatiha. And then part of Surat al-Muddathir, arise and warn. So he starts talking to the people he knows well, uh, calling them to the dean, invites his uncles over, uh, and then uh, and twice, and they don't become Muslim, but Ali becomes Muslim. Abu Bakr becomes Muslim. Uh, but then he gets instructions to go public and he stands on Safa right near the Kaaba and he says, oh, my people, and he gets their attention. Uh, if I told you there's an army coming, attacking from behind this hill, would you believe me? Yes, of course, you are Sadiq Al-Amin. You know, we can't even imagine you lying. Then what does he say? This is before Abu Lahab speaks. He says, then I warn you of a coming day of judgment. That's his first public instruction. If we go with that, then that's consistent with what we have here, that the Quran may be speaking in this moment about the Quran, may be speaking about the Prophet, peace be upon him, may be speaking about the day of judgment. This doubtless inescapable day, no doubt about it whatsoever, no doubt in it, it is absolute clarity. As though when you're asleep, you understand there's a veil over you. And when you're awake, you understand that one of those veils is removed. Now imagine all the veils are removed. Even when we're awake, we are to some degree asleep. We're hidden by veils, hidden from true reality. There, the veils will be removed. So that is the reading that this is the day of judgment. Now, speaking of the last part of this ayah, taqwa. Taqwa in common modern language is often translated as fear of Allah. But getting into the etymology, it is to shield yourself with Allah. And what does it mean to shield yourself with Allah? It essentially means God consciousness. Plus, as a result or synonymous with God consciousness, 
is being on guard. Okay, so this is taqwa. It is guidance for those who have taqwa. What if I don't have taqwa? Then it is guidance on how to get taqwa. So we'll find many passages of the Quran where if you do this, perhaps, hopefully, you will get taqwa. So take Allah as in I-21, O humanity, be the abd of your Rabb. He's the one who created you as the one as he created those before you. La'allakum tattaqun. Perhaps you may get taqwa. Jump forward again. Around I-63 or so. And... Yes, so this is Allah speaking to the children of Israel. Hold tight. Keep, you know, think of the pledge that you made to us. We raised Mount Tur above you. Hold tight to what we have given you, the book. Remember what is in it. So that you may get taqwa. One level of guidance of the Quran is how to get taqwa. And then there's a deeper level for those who have taqwa. Mustafa. So one thing I also like to think about with uh, this area is how it says rather than using any verb form. And so it's not time bound. Deep. Bounds can be like present, past, future. And so can be for future nice. or for present people or for past people. That's pretty deep. Very nice, Moshal. So it's guidance for those who have taqwa, guidance for those who are God conscious, guidance for those who guard themselves. So then fear would be fear of wronging, fear of turning away from Allah, fear of displeasing Allah. That would be how it would fit. But there are other words in the Quran that are used for fear, the most obvious being khawf, but even irhab. So <clears throat> guidance for those who have taqwa. This is also making a statement about the nature of dunya. Part of the design of dunya is that it's meant to hit you. It will hit you over the course of your life. And if you take Allah as your shield, inshallah, you will be okay. okay. And then what we will discuss tomorrow, inshallah, is that the next two ayahs give us six attributes of the people of taqwa. And that we will get into when we get to them. Uh, let me look really quickly at the chats. Um, it was being compiled during the time of the first two calls from the inscriptions. Okay, yeah. Jewel, if the Quran was recorded in writing at the direction of the Prophet, peace be upon him, confused why Ahmad. Okay, very, very nice. So the Prophet, peace be upon him, once he started having secretaries who could read and write, he assigned secretaries to write down what he received. But because theirs, theirs was a verbal society, an oral society, paper was not common. Paper or papyrus and such were expensive. And so we're talking about a community that had very little, if any, wealth for much of its history. And so they would write literally on skins or shoulder bones of, of camels and such, not in one unit. And so in the majority opinion, there is a minority opinion that it was in book form. Uh, by the death of the prophet, the vast majority opinion is that he never had it put into book form, perhaps because they didn't even have the resources. 
throne. And so thus, Abu Bakr is saying, how can I do something the Prophet did not do? Let me know if that makes sense. Otherwise, any other questions, thoughts, reflections on any of this? If not, we will stop here, inshallah. And we'll continue tomorrow. And I think for most of next week, uh, my schedule is fine. So we'll probably have a class all the way through next week, inshallah. But I'll let you know otherwise. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah Ta'ala reward you all, inshallah. And we will continue uh, on Sunday. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.